four years I've been back in the United States, five years uh, from Yembe Yembe, where we'll get into that a little bit. But yeah, I came on as the executive director, as Sean said, at Radius in 2017, and have uh, been privileged to see a lot of growth go through that program and just some changes come in. Uh, but yeah, heard about this place from a few different uh, individuals, heard about this area. Like you, you get talking about everything. It feels like the epicenter of Stumo and traveling team and the DNA of Arkansas, like all mixes together in this brew of like pig's flesh and all sorts of things that happen around here. So anyways, we actually, I think we're going out to some barbecue place tomorrow that our waiter, I think Sean maybe, maybe bribed him, but he's like, it's the greatest thing all the way to Texas at Texas. And he started getting into barbecue. And so anyways, um, yeah, I'm just going to give you a brief kind of walk through in half an hour of uh, the Yembe Yembe story and how the gospel kind of came there and try and draw out maybe some principles as some of you, hopefully most of you in this room are wrestling with your role in not missions. Missions today means anything and everything. As long as you're doing it with a stranger outside of your house, it counts as missions. Hopefully you're thinking about your role in fulfilling the Great Commission, not in being a part or somehow we, we have a, a component of the Great Commission. Let's talk about fulfilling the Great Commission, like to where the last 3,112, depending on who you talk to, unreached language groups, not people groups, people groups is too nebulous. You can start to get into some DNA. There were uh, North American hockey players are categorized as an unreached people group, the LGBTQ community of South Carolina, that's Joshua Project. Like, we're talking about language groups, the actual getting down into the nuts and the bolts and objective measurement and seeing that accomplished. And so I'm hoping that this night maybe nudges you in that direction or how you get behind someone from this body or a neighboring body that is about that, about getting to those last places. And so that's my hope and my prayer as my wife and I were thinking through this uh, getting up at 2.30 this morning to get these guys uh, down at T, or we got them yesterday at this time at TJ, and then getting up and making it to the, to the plane this morning. That's my hope and prayer, is that this moves us maybe in some way collectively forward in that great endeavor that the King has left to us. So um, let me pray real quick, and then we'll get rolling. Father God, we pause to honor you as the one who gave this great commission to your church, not to individuals, not to parachurch organizations, not to radiuses, not to traveling teams, but to your bride. Father, we bow before that. Our lives, our treasure, our blood, our family, everything we lay before you for your purposes, your passions, your dreams. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I finished uh, high school in 1994. Uh, graduated from a boarding school. It was a British boarding school over in Papua New Guinea. Uh, my folks were missionaries. How many of you, this is going to date me a little bit, but how many of you have read Peace Child or Lords of the Earth? Anyone? Okay, there's like all four of you. Okay, those are good books. Don Richardson. Anyways, it's kind of, it's right up near the Erie and Jaya border. It was the precursor to like uh, radical and uh, crazy love and stuff like that. People used to read those books instead of reading the other ones. So um, I believe that. Whatever you're going to say, I believe it. It's a good book. Great book. So <clears throat> read that or uh, was raised up in that neck of the woods, went to that school, came back to the United States, was going to go into the Marine Corps, 
Um, my dad and I made a deal that if I would do two years at college, he would give me his blessing to join the Marine Corps. I went off to college, uh, met my freshman orientation coordinator, this drop-dead gorgeous blonde. She walked in, the Marine Corps walked bye-bye, that was the end of that. Um, <laughs> went through four years of college, got a degree in business administration with an emphasis in accounting. Figured out at the end of that time uh, that I was pretty decent at accounting, joined a firm in San Diego and started working. And then I started working in Europe a little bit for this firm called Trespa North America. Eventually worked my way up to general manager of accounting in North American operations. Went over, sat for my psyche valves, and then did uh, became the chief operating officer, chief financial officer for all of North American operations. Worked in the Netherlands mostly, a little bit in Germany, a little bit in France. And during this time, we were active members in our church by God's grace. We were able to uh, support about four or five families that were going through, active in the youth group. And we were living a lifestyle that, man, we just, we dreamed about. My wife's $60,000 in loans we paid off in nine months. And we were starting to see this house in La Jolla. My wife had a Mercedes S-Class. I had one of these cheddar cheese Nissan Xterras. Had the whole interior rubberized so that I could put my surfboards in and then hose out the interior at the end. Um, we were just, things were clicking for us. And guys, by God's grace, uh, we had, we continued to walk through what the Word was teaching us and what our plans measured up to what the Word was kind of guiding us. Passages like Matthew 28, 19 and 20, uh, Revelation 5, 9, walking through Romans 15 and thinking through the ramifications of how come Paul had the audacity to say from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, this is finished, this is done. This is shocking. If you, if you listen to a church today, very rarely will you hear someone declare an entire region, like maybe Fayetteville, like this is a reached area according to the metrics of Roman 15. We don't have time to get into that. But there, there is such a thing as a reached location, according to what Paul is talking about. And so getting that through our mind. And I would love to say that I got a missionary call, that my wife and I, like, we walked outside, and, like, all of a sudden our belly was, like, squeamish, and we looked up, and there was, like, Papua New Guinea. It never happened. And when I was in leadership over in Papua New Guinea, I had about 220 missionaries my final five years that I was responsible for. We did a little poll at the end of our annual conference and asked how many people got a missionary call and none of them raised their hand they read their bibles they believed what it said and they said i'll go and based off of that god has the power to open doors but here's the here's the the gap in a lot of people's theology is he doesn't have the power to close doors somehow if god has you heading in one direction he's not going to be able to close that door like you'll end up in africa by accident or something like that that that's a bad gap in theology. And so my wife and I, based off of what we saw and the input of our church elders saying, we see this too, kept going and kept going. And so we headed, uh, we walked away from the job, uh, headed off to training, got two years of training. We're going to get into training on the panel, hopefully. Uh, why training is so important. And when I say training, anything less than six months doesn't count as training. Uh, having serious cross-cultural training. There's a reason why the last 300 3,112 unreached language groups are the last ones. It's not like it's a random thing. Oh, some happen to be in the 1040 window, some are over here. No, no, no. There's a reason why. And if you're going to get to those places, you're going to need training to actually get there and to plant a church that will hopefully outlive every one of us in this room. There has to be some component 
of understanding the hurdles that are coming. How do I stay in that type of a country? How do I learn a language that's never been written down before? How do I live in an area where there's no Walmarts, no Tyson's Chicken, none of that kind of stuff? How, how do you actually do that? Well, that's where good, serious, pre-field training, not on-field, on-field you're already in the fight, pre-field training comes in. And so my wife and I, again, I have the great accounting background. She's got a counseling psych background. The training was fit for us. We had two years of that. Then we headed off to the field of Papua New Guinea. If you're going to work among the unreached today, and when I'm saying unreached, you guys know the definition I'm working off of, you're going to have to learn two languages. You have to learn the language of the country, the national language. Some people will call it the gateway language. Then you have to learn the language of the unreached people group, language group within that country. And so it took us about a year and a half to learn Melanesian pigeon, fairly easy language, and then, I'll never forget this, the leadership of our organization came to us and they handed us a list. And on this list were seven people groups that had been asking for missionaries for five years or more. They don't make the list unless they ask for five consecutive years. There was one group on there that had been asking for 12 years. And so we looked at the list and myself and the two other guys on the team and our families and we sent it back to our home churches. We prayed about it for a few weeks and we figured we got it. There's just no way we can avoid this one people group that's been asking for 12 years. And so we asked the mission uh, leadership if they would book the plane for us. The day came when we're going to fly to the closest airfield to this people group called the Tuati people. Uh, the plane drops down, lands at our little base uh, field there. And the pilot gets out and he goes, guys, I got good news and bad news. The good news is it's a great flying day. The bad news is the field that I was going to drop you off and that it's about a 35-minute flight away, they had six inches of rain overnight and it's underwater. We're not landing there. What's your second choice? And so we pulled out the list and there was this people group on there called the Yembi Yembi. And so right there on the, on the tarmac, I'm scribbled out this quick little note in the national language saying, hey, we're coming to your people group today please be kind. That was the gist of the email because we'd heard about them. They're a really dominant, aggressive people group. And so I took my water bottle, emptied it out, whipped it around till we got as much water out, rolled up the note, put it in the water bottle, and we took off. Took off, flew, flew, flew for about 45 minutes, got over the MBMB tribe. We could see people running. We saw what looked like was a soccer field and the plane dropped down. He turns the plane on the side. The pilot does. I'm on the passenger side. Open up the window whip it out, and I remember seeing this little kid. He's booking like this, and he's going to catch the water bottle, and I'm like, we're going to kill the first Yembi Yembi we meet. Because <laughs> I can watch it. I'm just watching him like, this is going to drill him in the head. This is it. Like, it's us killing natives. That's fabulous. Um, he misses it, and so the, the people come in, and they we can see him waving the note. We don't know if they can read it, and we keep flying. We fly, fly, fly for another 10 minutes, and every minute you're flying, you're gulping because it's another hour that you're going to be on the river. We land at the closest air or closest landing strip, get out. There was a motor canoe that we'd prearranged. So a motor canoe is a canoe about half as long as this room. It's got an outboard motor on the back of it, and we start canoeing. And we canoe for seven hours, working our way, getting there to the Yembi and we get close, and we can hear the drums. This is what happens in that part of the world. They're hitting drums, and they're pounding out news that strangers are coming. Later on, when we were there for four or five years, we could understand the drums. At that point, it just sounded like a Hollywood movie. And so we're getting closer, and these drums are getting louder. We pull up to Yembi Yembi. And what they do in Yembi 
if you visit someday, which none of you in this room most likely will, but uh, if they like you, don't ask what they do if they don't like you, but they, they take a hunk of mud, they shove it into your forehead, and they push it all the way down to your Adam's apple, and then they take diced up flower petals, and they whip them at your face, which just had the mud on it, and it sticks to the mud, and this is what's happening to us. Then they jumped us out of the canoe, and one guy, like the Yembies have massive shoulders. The women, every one of the women over there would just crush every man in this room. They got <laughs> they have massive shoulders because they've been paddling canoes all their life since they could sit up. And they lift us out, but they're all about this short, and so they lift us by one leg. They grab their hands underneath their legs, and they're dancing with us. And I mean, we got stuff coming down our face, and I'm just like, what are we this is ridiculous. And I'm watching my coworkers, and their heads are bobbing, and they lose their center of gravity and dump them on the floor, and it was just ridiculous. And that was our welcome to Yembiemi. That was the first time that we pulled in because they had been asking. They had had someone who had been writing letters on their behalf for seven years. Seven years, somebody would write a letter, walk it all the way out, the three-and-a-half-day hike to get to the mission headquarters to say, will you send us someone? And they weren't asking for pure reasons. We know from Scripture that no man seeks after God. It's not like they were going, oh, there's this Jesus guy that we haven't heard of. What they were seeing is when the missionaries move into a location, two things happen. Number one, they bring with them these little white pills and their babies stop dying. When we moved into Yembe Yembe, there's about 35, 40% of the girls that gave birth, the babies died, and about 20% of the girls died. The girls got married right around puberty, so 13, 14 and so their, their babies are dying, and then the young girls are dying as well because they're so young, and some of the basic medicine that could have prevented a lot of it wasn't available to them. And so that was number one. And then number two, some sort of talk comes into the village. We don't know what it is, but we've heard about it. It happened in this other place that's three days' hike away, and whatever that is, we want that. And so that's why they were writing these letters. And so we went in, we took a bunch of language samples, recorded a bunch of things, wrote some things down, took a ton of pictures, and then same thing, seven hours back out by canoe, picked up the airplane, went back, uh, showed our wives, showed mission leadership, sent some stuff back to our home church, and we said, this is the place we think God has us going. They agreed with us, we went back in, and the Yembies, uh, we told them the news, hey, we're going to come and we're going to do four things. Number one, we're going to learn your language. We're going to learn to speak your language like you speak it, because the message we have is too important to screw up. We're not going to do this halfway. We're going to do this to the full way, to where we understand what you're saying, you understand what we're saying. Number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. The Yembies didn't have a written alphabet, so we had to develop an alphabet for them. And then number three, there's this really important book. We're going to do a few books before that, but there's this really important book. We're going to translate that book into your language. And then the last thing we're going to do, we're going to teach you the meaning of that book. And when this is done, when we've done all four of those things someday, we're going to leave. We're not here forever. We're going to do those four things, and then we're going to take off. And so the Yembies were so jazzed, and then they got up, and they said, okay, if you're going to come live with us, we want you to not live like, uh, we don't want you to be like tourists. The Yembies had, we were there a few times when European and sometimes American tourists would come in. They'd land in a helicopter They'd trade with them through an interpreter that knew the national language, and the few of them that knew the national language would trade with them, and then they'd fly back out. We don't want you to be like those people. If you're going to come and you're going to do this, we want you to live with us. We want you to be like one of us. In Yembi Yembi, there's four clans. There's the ostrich clan, the eagle clan, the black cockatoos, and the toucans. They're all birds. They're all descended from four brothers. 
And so they looked at our physical features, and based off of our physical features, they put us into different clans. So I got these long legs and this crooked nose from too much basketball, and they're like, yeah, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So <laughs> they stuck me in the ostrich My wife's got long blonde hair. They stuck her in the eagle clan, and then another one of the ladies on the team has curly black hair, and so she's in the black cockatoo clan. And They put us all in these clans, and then they gave us new names, and then they showed us who we're related to. The tribe is about a thousand people, excuse me, a thousand people strong, and you're related to everyone. You're either a brother, a sister, a cousin, a second cousin, a third cousin, and they all know the system. And it took us literally about a year till we knew every person in the tribe and how we're related to them. Who are my in-laws? Who are not my in-laws? Golly, um, getting remarried. We, they said, did you get married in the cold country? That's what they call every place that's not Papua New Guinea. It's like Jews and Gentiles. It's like everybody who's not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Everybody who's not in Papua New Guinea, you're from the cold country. So they said, how did they marry you? Well, they, they brought us in and we're trying to simplify it. And they put these rings on our fingers. And then they, they pronounce us married. And said, oh, you know nothing. And so we had to get remarried so that we were legally married in Yembe Yembe. And then they came to us about three months into it, and they asked us one night, me and the two other guys on the team, they said, um, have you guys ever killed a pig? We said, no. And then one guy said, yeah, wait, no, no, I killed a pig. He's from Minnesota. He was like on a pig farm. You guys will know about this way more than I. Apparently, they used like a, a stun gun or something. Like he said, yeah, we used like this. And then he stopped trying to explain it. Yeah, I killed a pig. He goes, no, no. Have you killed a pig at night with a spear by yourself? No, I've never done that, never done that. And so they came up with a new name for us because in Yembe Yembe, a boy changes into a man when he kills a pig at night with a spear by himself for the first time. Then he makes the transition from boyhood to being a man. Doesn't matter if he does it when he's 10, doesn't matter if he does it when he's 45, then you're a real man. And so we're sitting there at night and they came up with a new name for us because somehow we'd been allowed to marry and we'd been allowed to father children, and we were still boys. And so they called us overgrown boys. Like, they made up this name on the spot. You're these massive bodies guys that are still boys. And so we sat around, and we talked about it. We're like, good night. we got to do this. Otherwise, when the gospel comes someday, it comes from a boy. Like, it comes from somebody who doesn't have the respect level that they should in that culture. So we, while we're learning language, it took us about six months to learn how to walk through the jungle at night with just a pair of shorts on, You've got a bush knife in this hand. You've got a spear in this hand. Knees knocking, and you get down there, pop the flashlight on, hope he's there, and then, holy cow, there's this huge boar about this high, and it's just ready to turn around and eat you alive. And we had to kill a pig, and we had to get to that stage to where every one of the guys on the team who was going to teach had to kill a pig. Easy for the guy in Minnesota. I'm not, a I'm not even a camper. Like, there's... <laughs> There's people that come up, I speak at these churches, it's mostly older folks that'll come up afterwards and they're going, that's so cool that God gifted you for like hunting and fishing and living. My wife and I loathe the outdoors. Like this is something we don't tell a lot of people. We don't go hunting, we don't go camping. The closest we get, we go to the beach and I go surfing with my son, that's it. We like sushi, we like smog, we like cement, that's all we like. And so this whole idea that, well, my passion isn't the jungle, guess what, join the club. My passion isn't either, but it's not really about your passion, about your Savior's passion. And so we, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, gosh. So we had to learn how to hunt these things. And another brother who worked for MTV in L.A., he had to learn how to throw a spear. He had, like, this little thing on a cardboard uh, thing of, like, a pig stuck around, and he'd throw and miss the whole cardboard. And we're like, oh, this is going to take forever. 
But eventually we all did this so that when the gospel came, the gospel would come with that credibility. Guys, I hope you understand the implications of why Jesus didn't parachute in as a 30-year-old. Why Jesus took the time, ate the food, learned the language, was known as there's the carpenter's son. There's his brothers. There's his sisters. He had a known story. This is lost in Western missionaries most often because we go too fast. We want to parachute in. We want to do this in six months, six years. Whatever it is, if you're not a known commodity to your people, your God isn't a known commodity. You're the God of the outsiders. You're the God of the Americans. You represent him. You don't represent someone who's bled with them, who's sweat with them, who's cried with them. They've seen your son grow from three years old to 16 before their very eyes. These are the types of things that our Savior did. And we have almost no recorded history of him from zero to 30. And yet he's a known commodity. There's an example in there that I think is lost too often. So we learned their language, took us two and a half years to become fluent to where we could tell jokes and people would laugh. You want to know how good your missionaries are? Go overseas and watch how when the locals tell jokes, how long does it take them to understand the punchline? Do they laugh at the same time as everybody else? That'll tell you how fast they know it. To be able to speak with color, with metaphor, with simile, with all of the various ways that God has equipped that language to communicate the gospel in. Are your missionaries up to speed to that level? That's worldview level communication. We differentiate down in radius between market level fluency because I tell you what, you ask most missionaries overseas, they'll say, yeah, yeah, we're fluent. Market level fluency versus worldview level fluency. Buying oranges and getting your oil changed, that's market-level fluency. Worldview-level fluency, that's being able to communicate salvation by grace through faith alone. That's being able to tell jokes. That's being able to do Q&A on the fly because you know that language to that level, and that is accomplishable. We're seeing that happen with Radius grads even in the last few weeks. I was showing these guys on the plane flight, one of our brothers that's over in an Arabic-speaking country giving his first talk in front of about 40 men learning the language to that level, and finally we started teaching. In June, excuse me, January of 2008, we started into it, and we didn't start in Romans, we didn't start in Matthew, uh, we started in Genesis 1-1, and laying out the God of this book, and we had pre, we'd already gone through three classes of literacy to where these guys had learned how to read and write in their own language for the first time in their history, and then having scripture portions that were translated. We didn't have the whole book of Genesis, but we had about half of it. We had some of Exodus, and then we had a bunch of other Old Testament portions. So we're teaching during the day, and then at nighttime, we're getting ahead with the translation and finally starting to get into Mark and to Matthew and those other passages that were going to be crucial for when the Savior came on the scene. And we started teaching, and we started laying out for the Yembies, this is the God of this book. This is the God of your ancestors. They are not the same thing. They are very, very different. You choose which one is true, which one is false. You're teaching in a manner to set up intentional conflict. Again, this is what so many Western missionaries get wrong, is that you're teaching in a way to where you've got to know what you're teaching into. You're not teaching into a vacuum. Everybody has answers on the face of the planet. From Europe to Asia, all the way across, everyone has answers for eternal questions. Do you know what those answers are? Before you tell the story of Cain and Abel, do you know where they're going to run? Do you know where their minds are going to go when Judas comes on the scene? 
Who is this guy? Oh, he's getting it over on Jesus. We've seen that happen because the missionaries didn't know the language and culture to the level that they should. So we start working them through and getting to, man, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 were so incredibly powerful up till the fall, laying out every kind of food that the MBMBs have. They have seven different kinds of sago, 14 different kinds of bananas. We took one whole day and we laid out every food. We had the plane fly-in foods from Australia that they'd never seen before, kumquats and these other things, vegetables. Our guys have tons of fruit. They have very few vegetables. Cutting them up in enough pieces, nearly the entire tribe is showing up to where maybe 500 people can have just a little bit of a bite. We brought in a live sheep. They'd never seen a sheep before. Everybody's mouth is watering. This is going to taste great. And seeing them taste these things, does God eat food? No. Why did he create such wondrous variety? He loves you. He loves me. He loves his creation made in his image. And to see the Yembi-Yembis falling in love with this God. And finally, we get to Genesis chapter 3. And guys, I'm a firm believer that if the people group that you are going to doesn't understand Genesis chapter 3, there's no way they understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's just not possible. If you don't know what you're being saved from, what's the point of the cure? And to get to Genesis chapter 3, and we pounded that for nearly a week, teaching through the ramifications of the fall. And our guys, so you guys are, you're a very normal American audience. You know the right times to laugh. You know the right times to be somber and maybe make a tear here and there or whatever. The Yembies had never been in institutional learning in their life. And so when you teach, the teacher stands in the middle and everybody sits around you, 360. And so you're teaching, but while you're teaching, the Yembies will yell out at any time, keep talking! If they like what you're saying, they'll yell, keep talking, this talk is good to my belly. The belly is the seat of their emotions. Ours is our heart. My heart is broken. My heart is, theirs is their belly. And so if they don't like what you're saying, they'll yell from anywhere, shut your mouth. I'm about to throw this talk up. They're like, it's too much for my stomach. So this is going on. And then somebody will turn to the person next to him and go, that was really good. And this is all happening while you're talking. So you know if you're flying or dying really fast. And so you're up there teaching. So we would teach and then we would act things out because they're concrete learners. And this happens in a lot of these types of animistic cultures. And don't kid yourself. This is another one of those Western fallacies that somehow they're Muslim, so they're not animistic. Mm, brother, sister, you are making a grave mistake. The vast majority of religions today on the face of the earth are undergirded by animism. The, the hood ornament, the veneer, is Islam, is Hinduism, is Catholicism. But the power behind it, that's animism. And so to teach them in a way that they would understand, we would act these things out. And so we act out the fall. And my coworker's wife, she's Eve, and I'm Satan. I've got this black bed sheet on my head. And we're walking around in circles, and we're whispering. We're whispering loud enough, or I'm whispering in her ear loud enough for a 1,000 people to hear, Eve, Eve, if you just eat the fruit, your eyes will be open, and you'll be just like God. I mean, the envies. Remember, these are unsaved people. And I mean, they're yelling out, they're cussing. Hey, smart girl, look at your belly. Where do you think all that food came from? Hey, bleep, 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 you really going to do this? And she's reaching out for the fruit. And a couple of the tribal ladies can't even take it. Get up, pull her hand down. We got to sit them and sit down. And we're just acting it out. I know, but she's going to, I know. There's more to the story. My coworker's wife reaches out, grabs the fruit, takes a bite. A thousand people go quiet. And we start listing off again the 
ramifications of the curse. What happens to your women when they give birth? We have epidurals. We have C-sections. We have things that basically erase parts of the curse for us in this part of the world. Over there, it's real. Man, if you've ever buried a body in the tropics, from dust you came to dust you will return. Pretty real. But the promise, again, of Genesis chapter 3, someday I will send someone. And we had we brought in a branch. There was a big tree outside. Um, it was called a lau lau tree, and we ripped a branch off of it. This is us, guys. This is us when we broke away from the Father. We broke away, our ancestors did, and it trickles down to us today. And every day for the next three months as we taught, that tree gets drier, that branch drier and drier, and finally the leaves start dropping off. The promise. But there is another promise that someday God was going to send someone who had the power to put the branch back in the tree to make things right between God and man again. That one is coming. Probably the most exciting thing, I didn't see it coming, was a week later we teach the next lesson on Cain and Abel. And we're teaching on Cain and Abel, and I'm introducing the characters, the children of Adam and Eve, and this one called Cain, who is the older brother. And then one of the guys stands up in the back, and he goes, wait, wait, wait. And he starts yelling loud because everybody else is kind of doing their murmuring thing. And he goes, wait, 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 stop the talk, stop the talk. This one you speak of, Cain, is he the one? And we said, wait, what do you mean? And then my coworker's like, let him, let him finish, let him do his thought. Because we didn't know where he was going with it. And he says, is he the one who's going to put the branch back in the tree? No, he's not the one. He's not the one. Okay, all right, keep the talk going. And everybody turns around, you idiot, sit back down. And, <laughs> and everybody's like, that was a good question. He's trying to <laughs> act like they were smarter than he was. And guys, it was so cool to see every one of the Old Testament characters, whether it was in public or private, people were coming to us and asking, when Abraham comes on the scene, when Isaac comes on the scene, when David comes on the scene, the most promising of them all, when Solomon comes on the scene, because the nations are starting to come, and we're starting to see Israel become the light of the world. They're bringing outsiders, and then Solomon falls, and Solomon's not the one. Finally, we get to John. We get to the New Testament. And John the Baptist is standing there, and he sees Jesus walking alongside the River Jordan. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Guys, we had like five, five people stand up, uh, two men and three ladies, and they stood, wait, 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 wait. Stop the talk, stop the talk. This one that John was speaking of, is he the one? Or are we waiting for another? Guys, I hope that some of you in the room have the privilege someday of being in a spot like that to say, no, he's the one. He's the one that we left our families for. He's the whole reason we've taken the time to learn their language. He is the whole reason this talk is going to center around this guy. Oh, my goodness. And I mean, the Yembies, again, they're not like you. They start yelling out cross words. Well, bleep, bleep, stop the talk of John the Baptist. We want to hear about this guy. <laughs> Wait a second. I mean... No, we're building a house. This is our analogy. We're building a house, and you always put the posts in first, and you put these. We're not to the roof yet. We're there. We're getting there. Forget the building. We want to see about this guy. And to walk them through John the Baptist and then to dive into the story of Jesus. Because I tell you what, guys, um, just I was making the, the point just with my son the other day that we were teaching through an analogy. Jesus had more in common. Jewish culture had much more in common with what the Yembiambis live like today than what we live like. Somehow, through all of the ways that Jesus didn't hang out at the TGC conferences, 
He wasn't at T4G. He wasn't at the White House praying for the president. Jesus hung out with people like the Yembies. Jesus hung out with people who were on the very back ends, who knew that they were on the very back end. See, the, the Yembies knew there's a reason why they were the last ones. They knew there's a reason why the Basodios got the talk first, why the town of Wewak has the talk, why people hang out in Port Moresby, and a lot of missionaries tend to hang out in those big cities. But it's taken years, and we've buried a lot of people till you got to us. And Jesus, he went for those types of people. He hung out with those ones. And to see them fall in love with Jesus even before they knew he died for them. Guys, what a privilege to build up the character of our God, to see him come alive. And we, would, we had some funerals during that time. And man, if Jesus was here, what would he have done? Would he have put his hands on the canoe and would he have seen him come back to life? What would Jesus do with your foot? And this guy who has this deformed foot. And, what, and I mean, they would tell stories to walk around at night in between the houses to where they don't know you're there and to hear them reading through their scripture portions and talking about, man, think about what our bellies would feel like right now. He put his hands on the sago, and all of a sudden the sago just fed everybody in the tribe. To see them just, oh my goodness, this is the guy who always, and finally we get to, Sean, I think I'm, I'm almost done here. Um, <clears throat> we get to the point to where we're presenting the death, burial, and resurrection. And I, I'm not going to get into too much of that story. The day uh, was right April 21st, 2008, four months from the time that we started getting through and to see the way that God brought the entire group together, and we had a rainstorm that was barreling down on us that day. I think some of you guys have heard this story, maybe some of you haven't. Um, we, in the tropics, much like apparently it's going to be here tomorrow, my goodness, our waiter, what is he, like a meteorologist in training at <laughs> University of Arkansas? Anyways, he, uh, he was telling us there's like some huge four and a half inches of rain coming tomorrow. We, in the tropics, there's huge rainstorms, and so we see this one coming down at us, and we've taught through the death, the burial, and we're getting to the resurrection, the heart of the gospel. And we see this rainstorm coming down, and our team huddles up, and we actually had two guys that we believe were saved at that point because they'd helped us translate through these portions, and they could put things together like, oh my goodness, he's the sheep, he's the sheep, he's the bronze serpent, he's the guy whose, his blood is going to be the door, but hold on. They were working it out. We get together, and we're praying. And guys, I'll, I'll never forget this. Uh, we're sitting there, and the teaching house is maybe about half this size. It's not as long, but it's maybe as wide because you've got 1,000 people, and everybody sits on the ground. And we see this rainstorm come down, and we see it split into two pieces, and we can see it raining over there. We can see it raining over there, and there's no rain anywhere around us. And the MB stayed in the middle of the building, and we kept teaching for another two hours and getting to the resurrection and if you've ever been among an unreached people group to where they're hearing this for the first time or you're with a group of high schoolers who have had very little perversion of the gospel seep into their life somehow and you see as they start to pick up the message, you can almost see it in their eyes as you're looking around and it's coming to people. And in Yembe Yembe, if it comes to them, it's coming to their neighbors in about 30 seconds and they, there's little pockets breaking out of oh my goodness, and you're hearing the talk of the seep seep, that's sheep, and you're hearing the talk of the bronze serpent, and this is the one, this is how he puts the branch back in, and you're hearing these things like that. And on that day, April 21st, 2008, we had the colonel of the Yemi church for the first time in their history, history of the world, that language group, had believers among it who knew what Jesus Christ did, that he had paid for their sins, 
that he was their redemption. Um, there's so much more that goes into that story. We did follow-up interviews for about a month, and then we dove into the book of Acts. Then we went into the book of Romans, and then the group that didn't get saved uh, nearly burned the building down. We had to evacuate my, uh, my son and my, uh, my wife a couple times. And there was a tremendous amount of persecution that came. Uh, the first seven believers, the, the MB still call them the brave seven, uh, four men and three women. One lady who uh, her husband was an unbeliever. She comes out of the water, and we've got all the believers that aren't getting baptized holding back this crowd of about 400 people that want to kill these seven people that are getting baptized. Her husband pops through as she comes out of the water, drills her in the face. She loses three teeth. Uh, she just gets beat like crazy. The believers come to her aid. Guys, <clears throat> what happened during those days in the early days of the YMBMB church served to kind of grow the church through its trials. It was too painful to like this talk. Our Yembis used to say, you can't have a foot in both canoes because when the canoes go like this, you end up in the water. You got to be in one canoe or the other canoe. You can't be in both canoes. It's too painful to put a foot in both canoes. And so you were either all in or you were all out one way or the other. And it served to purify whoever was coming was coming for the right motives. And as those seven who got baptized, who were the first church members of the YMBMB church, how they lived and how they died ended up spreading further and further. And the ones who were on the fence, now we're in this talk. We're going all the way. Baptism is a huge turning point for the YMBMB church. If you're baptized, it means you're turning your back on the old ways. And to see that church grow until it's right around 530 people now within the MBMB people group. And just last year, they sent out their first missionaries to neighboring language groups to start learning their languages to do what we did with them. And so in 2016, excuse me, 2013, we finished the New Testament translation. I'm still working on a couple books of the Old Testament. But we told the Yemis, uh, the New Testament's finished. We're going to bring it in and we're going to hand it out. And the elders of the church looked at me and they go, you're still thinking like an American. We're the Yembies. We're going to have a party about this. We're not going to just let you bring this in on the airplane and just hand it out like it's some scrap of nothing. We're going to invite all the tribes from around the area who don't know the gospel and the ones who we hope to someday. They're all going to come and we're going to kill a bunch of pigs and you're going to invite in the Mama Church, the church that we got sent out from, Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church, the church that my wife grew up in, Shadow Mountain Community Church, you're going to invite some of their leaders to come, and they're going to be here, and they're going to hand this to us because we're from them. And guys, to have the ones from our church coming over and to be part of that ceremony. So there was a video done about this. It's 30 minutes long. We're not going to watch the whole thing. We're going to watch like five minutes of it. I think we got the sound right. We'll see. But, but anyways, watch this, and then I think we'll wrap up for tonight, or we'll wrap up for the Q&A. providing them with a Bible in their native tongue. This occasion is honored by a dedication that brings hundreds of native believers, neighboring missionaries, and even supporters from back home. It's a celebration of heavenly proportions.
to wonder what am I doing here will this matter will it even last now I just stand in wonder how did God take us a few regular people to this remote village in the middle of the jungle to plant the seed of his word and watch it grow watch it transform and see the dead brought to life and hear a new people proclaim God's glory in their own language
This is just one story of one tribe, but there are thousands just like them, still waiting to hear. Bottles out of airplanes. So one of the things that I didn't get a chance to say that I fumbled in the introduction um, because I was anxious to get Brooks up was one of the week, reasons that we brought him in this week is because for those of you have, who have been with us for the last eight weeks of called and sent, we've been moving forward progressively. We started out the first three weeks with God's heart for the nations in scripture then we took a look at the history of missions in a short talk. Um, we talked about the 1040 window and what unreached people groups are. Uh, Brad came and talked, we, Pastor Brad came and talked about the exclusivity of Jesus. Um, and then the last couple weeks, we've been talking about the local church as it relates to the one who's going, and then the local church as they take responsibility to send those who are going. And so this week, we finally got to the place where if we're going to talk about going and sending, and we're going to talk about what it's going to take to reach these remaining unreached language groups. Uh, one of the reasons we wanted to bring Brooks in was to talk about the role of training um, and just a little bit about the role of a sending agency. And so Radius is not a sending agency. They are a training organization. But previously, Brooks worked with ascending agency and so he also has the experience to speak into a little bit about sending agencies and so if you're wondering why this week what's the significance we've sort of been coming to this place where if we're going to take the gospel to the last remaining unreached language groups what's it going to take to get it done and one of the things that it's going to take to get it done is appropriate training <clears throat> and so again for those of you who are at UBC um, you have started to be introduced to Radius uh, through some of our Sunday evening services, some of the budgetary decisions that we voted on as a congregational body. And so we wanted to get Brooks here to talk about a few of those things. So we are going to try to maybe take 13, 10, 13, 14 minutes to do a short, short panel discussion. And then we'll go over a little long if you guys have some questions that we could possibly field. So question number one, ready? We're going to yeah. dive right in. Um, would you mind taking a few minutes, Brooks, to explain your understanding of the role between the local church and the training organization or the sending organization? So how do you understand the role of the local church and the training organization, sending organization? Well, first of all, I've done a ton of talking tonight, so I'm actually going to hand this down to Jessica. Jessica? Local church. <laughs> yeah, tell Jessica, tell us who are Brooks' guests. Um, yeah. Brooks brought two people with him. Jessica, take a second to introduce yourself, and I'm then you can field a question. I'm Jessica. <laughs> um, what church are you from? I'm from Redeemer Baptist Church, which is also where Amber and Jake go, so they're cool. Um, so I'm in from Riverside, California, and I go there, and I've been going to Redeemer for like six years now. Where do you go right, or where are you right now in life? Uh, I'm at Radius. <laughs> that's where I'm at. I, um, yeah, that's where I'm at. Okay. I, yeah, I graduated college in 2018, and then I decided to go to Radius in like a week. So then I am now there, and I'll graduate, and then we'll see. 
relationship between the sending agency and the church? What should it be? What should it not be? Yeah, so I, I think that the, the local church is, and the universal church is the bride of Christ and therefore should be the motivation and like the, the ability to, to mobilize people. Um, and I think sending agencies are like the catalyst for that and have been, and that's great. Um, but I think the drive should be the church to like doctrinally and theologically like drive people to the field with like an accurate representation of the gospel to be able to speak it clearly and live it sincerely. Um, and I think the way that sending agencies are able to provide resources to get M's to overseas is great. But I think the primary motivation is the church. You want to add anything to that? Yeah, I'd just say like uh, uh, the local church. I'm James, by the way. Sorry, I'm James from local Crossway church. Baptist in Bakersfield, California. And uh, so, yeah, and now we're at Radius and uh, hoping to move to. When you say we, who's we? My wife and I. Not her. Uh, I'm married to someone else. She's in Mexico right now, missing me. Her name's Kate. And we're planning on going to the Middle East next year. So, um, yeah, I'd say the, the Great Commission was given to the local church. So local churches to carry out the Great Commission. Uh, they're to train as best they can their candidates. They're to send them out. They're to keep them accountable. They're to be in charge of their spiritual care. Uh, the, the sending agency is, is, like Jess said, they're merely a catalyst. They're... Uh, they're subservient. They serve the church um, underneath the, the authority of the local church um, to see the task completed. So, that the, the, so whatever the church can't do, whatever the church can do, they should do. And whatever the church is not able to do, then the, the sending agency exists to kind of fill that, fill that gap. And ideally, that should be a minimal gap. Um, that should be things that just the church can't do because of their bandwidth. Yeah, so real quick, talk about what some of those things might be, James. Um, what might the local church not be able to do that a training organization could provide above and beyond? Or yeah, so, alongside it would probably even be a more appropriate way to say yeah, that. Yeah, so as far as training goes, um, for us specifically, our church doesn't, we're going to be the first one sent from our church. And, there, and uh, the church that we are previously at in Michigan they have a long history of missions, but they don't have a long history of doing what we're doing. So uh, they don't have people that have the experience to adequately train us. They don't have people that have learned the languages to the, de to the degree that you're talking about, learning two languages um, to train us in how to learn a language. And so, um, and, and there are just some, some more unique factors like being at Tijuana, being in a, being in a third, uh, like in another culture, having to practice it. Um, and having to learn some of those hard lessons um, that you wouldn't be able to learn at, like in Bakersfield at your local church. And so there's lots of things like that that, are, that radius exists to kind of fill in those gaps over nine months um, to help us to be more equipped after, that, after the program's done. The, the one thing about radius that makes it different than about all other training agencies is that it's not subservient to a sending agency. And so you get to compare apples to apples. Okay, this is what Pioneers does. This is what the IMB does. This is what GSI does. This is what Reaching and Teaching does. Here's what they're good at. Here's what they're bad at. And then you, along with all of your classmates, get to kind of interrogate them as they come through. Here's who we want to go with based on getting to evaluate them over the last seven months and seeing, okay, these would be the best ones to go to Iraq with. 
These would be the best ones to go to Indonesia. Here's where my home church really likes this agency. Here's, I think we should go with this. So we're trying to make it to where they have a chance to see the strengths and the weaknesses. And all agencies are not created equal. There are some strengths in the IMB. There are some distinct weaknesses. There are some strengths with reaching and teaching. There's some distinct weaknesses. But it usually just Joe Schmo coming out of cross conference isn't going to know that unless he gets the opportunity to see them all on equal footing and to ask them any question he wants in front of classmates who are going to help him do that. And you guys have graduates that have gone with all those sending agencies uh -huh. that you Everyone referred to. Them. Yeah. And every year they come down, they get a day to come down, they get a day to give their spiel, and then they have to do a nighttime Q&A. And all of the people who are interested in Frontiers are going to show up for the Frontier night. And we're going to interrogate them and we're going to find out, ooh, there's some parts of that that I'm kind of nervous about. But there's that really good team leader in Frontiers that I'm thinking about and I want to hear his MOU and I want to know that. And then you're going to get to know these things and you can make good decisions. And you also get to come up with teammates. That's one thing with a local church. There may be a couple of you, I hope in the near future, there's about four, five, 20 of you that are like, yeah, we want to do this. Everybody that's like in here. Yeah. But you may not find teammates where if you're going through radius, we'll have our big, we have the biggest class, we keep saying biggest class ever this year because we only grow by 10. We try and restrict the growth. So this year it'll be 70, but you find teammates among the classmates that are there and you decide, okay, this guy's church from Bakersfield, this girl's church from Minneapolis, we're going to team together and we're going to go to this people group, but we're going to go to their home church first so we get to know them before we head off as a team. Um, so we talked just real quickly uh, about what an, a training organization like Radius can do. Um, James, I'd love to hear just you and Jessica just about how your guys' local church was involved in your process even before you got to Radius and then even what you're hoping and expecting from them afterwards. So here's what Radius does that the local church might not do, but what role does the local church and what role has the local church played in, in your own growth and discipleship? So, so I, um, I was actually in Challenge, which is the Christian ministry at CBU at California Baptist University. And the head of that is also the missionary pastor at my church. And so talking to Brian and having conversations, it wasn't just like, hey, I'm interested in going overseas for the rest of my life. It was like this gradual discipleship of learning about the nations. And I actually, like, we had short-term trips with my school, and I, like, went for two weeks. And then the next summer I went for two months, and I was like, okay, Brian, I think I'm ready to do journeyman for a couple years. And he's like, what about long-term? And I was like, I don't know. It's too much commitment. So he's like, okay, I guess, and, and, and that was great, and I think he was willing to, like, walk with me and, and, like, walk through each decision with me, and then I went to Radius Day, and I was like, Brian, I can't, I can't go for two, two years, like, I have to go forever, and he's like, cool, <laughs> so then we, I don't know, so, like, walking with my local church, it wasn't like a, hi, I'm here, my name is Jessica, by the way, like, I want to go overseas forever, it was like, hey, I know this girl named Jess, she, you know, we walked with her, like women in the church have been walking with her in discipleship, she's been like growing an affinity for the nations, and now she's like actually understanding of like what it means to give her life for the gospel overseas. So um, my church does a program called Setting Pipeline, which is kind of like from the moment that you tell anyone in leadership, like I'm interested in being sent by this church, they drop you in this like literal pipe that like, <laughs> not literally, <laughs> I guess it's not literal, <laughs> like not, um, 
they, they metaphorically, analytically, they, they put you in like a filter that says like everything that you do in this church, we're going to filter it through like the lens of missions. So when we give you like talks on theology and doctrine and hermeneutics, we want you to be able to be like withstanding so that when we send you, it's like you were serving in our church in like another city. Like we want to be so confident in who you are as a believer that when we like can't even touch you like thousands and thousands of miles away, we know that you're stable enough and that you're representing Jesus well. So radius is like a requirement in sending pipelines. So like your growth in that radius is the last step for every person that's sent out by Redeemer for, for the rest of history. So, like, <laughs> and, and that's, like, awesome because they just want to ensure, like, I loved, I think I used this analogy, Brooks, like, when you were talking about the canoe. I feel like I'm, I'm kind of, like, driving it, and my leadership is, like, guiding me and helping, like, make sure I'm not, like, faltering on one side or the other. They see things that I don't, and I'm really thankful that I've been able to walk through that. And actually, when I graduate, I have to finish, I have to, I've made a commitment to my church, and I want them to, like, weed out everything before I'm sent, and I trust them. So, like, when I graduate, I'm going back and I'm finishing that for a year before I'm, I'm going. So, I really trust them, and they've been a huge part of, like, how I'm, why I'm here and what I'm doing next. And Brian, the guy that you referred to, he's an elder at your church? Gotcha. All right, James, just a little bit about your experience yeah. with Crossway. Yeah, so I went, a, I went a different route. I came to my uh, pastor after a perspectives class that actually Sean taught. He taught lesson one, um, and then uh, Brooks's dad, Brad, uh, taught the last week of that. Um, and so after that class, I came to my pastor, and I, I— And real quick, how long ago was that, James? That was eight years ago. Yeah. So I only have James bring that up so that you guys can see, like, this is a lengthy—like, this can be a very lengthy process. So, mm -hmm. okay, go ahead. Yeah, so— <clears throat> Yeah, so I went to my pastor, and he said, well, I think you should consider going to seminary. And I hadn't really considered that before. Um, but I decided to, to go visit a couple seminaries. I uh, went to the Masters out in California. And then uh, my pastor actually graduated from Detroit Baptist, which is a really small seminary. Did not think I was going to end up out there. I went out and visited um, the, the church that runs the seminary, offered me an internship. And to basically walk with me through the process of learning how to how to do discipleship, how to do ministry, how to, um, how to get some of the tools that I hadn't really developed yet because I was just a young college student um, who was zealous and had a lot of ideas but didn't really, hadn't really done anything. And so I <clears throat> had a lot of maturing to do. So, uh, yeah, I went out there originally for a five-month internship, met my wife, stayed out there for five years, and uh, did four years of seminary while I was doing international student ministry in Detroit. And uh, that was just really helpful for me. Um, working in the local church, really understanding like this is where this is where, how God's working in the world. It's through the local church, um, doing healthy discipleship, uh, and then getting done with that program or getting done with my my MDiv, and then um, waiting for my wife to finish her degree so we can go and finish up training at at Radius. And so we came back to California, um, like more fully trained, um, yeah, and ready to go. Good. Um, shifting back over to Radius, uh, just a bit away from the local church. Um, Brooks, what makes Radius's training unique? Part of the three components. Number one, it's location. So we're down in Tijuana, Mexico. So we're better to train for cross-cultural ministry than in a cross-cultural setting. Students are usually soup sandwiches for about the first month and a half, terrified to go outside the gate. Their grandmothers told them, they're going to get cocaine stuck in their bag on accident and all this kind of stuff. And 
then they kind of get a little bit of a backbone and then they kind of grow and then they're like, Mexicans are really friendly. And then by the end of it, like we have a graduation and one graduations with all their Mexican friends that they made. And then there are other graduations with their church pastors, their family. And just to see like how many friends they made in 10 months down in Mexico. And they go, if this is what happened in 10 months, think about what if I gave my life for 15 years. Most of our students Every one of them, I should say, 15 to, 20, 15 to 20, sometimes 30 years is the expectation of what they're going for. It's not a time limit. It's not two years. It's not five years. It's until a strong local church is planted. That's the end goal. Not even making disciples. Disciples is a great first step. That's not the end goal of the Great Commission. So getting that DNA into them, Tijuana helps with that. The curriculum's unlike any other school. I'll... I have permission to quote Mark Dever. Mark Dever told John Piper on the phone the other day, these are the guys who are doing the things that everybody else talks about. Everybody else talks about this. These are the guys that are actually doing it. And so the combination of the staff, their history, you have to have learned two languages to teach language acquisition. You have, you have to have at least translated a New Testament in order to teach Bible translation. You have to have raised kids overseas for at least seven years if you're going to teach parenting. You have to have experienced people if the program's going to go beyond itself. And so location, curriculum, staff, those are the three biggies. Location, curriculum, and staff. Um, how long did you say? Ten months. Ten months. Yep. Uh, why ten months? Ten months because we could probably teach everything the course has to offer in about six months, but to get it to drive down into their DNA to where now they believe it, now they know, okay, these are the values that are going to hold me fast when I get to India, when I get to Sudan, it takes about that long till they start to, we find that like a normal student coming down can hold their breath, can be someone that they think they are for about two months. And then the real person pops out at about the third or fourth month. And then we can write their home church after the real the, person pops out. The That's real person kind of okay. like, ooh, that person has a little bit of an anger issue. Oh man, you're not really a very good teammate. Like you're usually the last one to show up for doing dishes. Like all this kind of stuff. And then at the end of their first semester, we write a report back to their home church, a nine-point character and competency report that says, here's what your member is good at, here's what they're not good at. And then the church takes them over Christmas break and goes, okay, this is really valuable information that we wouldn't have found out in Fayetteville, but we can find out in Tijuana because there's different stresses down there. And then they come back to us for the final five months, and then we hand them back to the church at the end. And so there's a synergy between the local church we say the program isn't necessary. It's, it's not for the sending agencies. It's not even for these guys. It's for their local church so that their local church can now have a certain level of confidence. We invested one year in this guy, and now we actually have a product, so to speak, that we have a lot more confidence in. There's zero guarantees in missions. There's zero guarantees in life. But now we have So you're not promising more. that... We're not promising anything, but we're saying they have, I will say this, the attrition rates for missions, I don't know if you guys know this, this is one of the dirty little secrets in missions, North American missionaries, 65 to 70% don't last longer than two years if they come from the United States. Some of that's intentional. You've got short-term programs that are going to plant a church in two weeks. Talk to Mark Dever about that. Um, two weeks, excuse me, two years. But then the other side of it is if they get good training, those numbers change. Radius is numbers we track everything are 92%. 92% of our grads make it to the field, stay. And so those numbers are hard to get around. What have you found to be the average length of time that 
the sending agencies that you guys are working with or that you've sent graduates with or that local churches have sent graduates with? That would be a better way to say it. Um, what's the average length of time that a long-term worker is trained through? Six weeks. Six okay, weeks about is six about weeks. average. Yeah. Now, to be fair, to be fair, does everybody need Radius's type of training? No, not at all. And so who does? We're trying to make that clear. Like, if you're going to the country of China and you want to work in Mandarin Chinese, Radius is not the program for you. If you're going to fly airplanes, if you're going to be a teacher, if you're going to help with human trafficking, if you're going to help hand out tracks, we're, those are wonderful things. Those are great things. I'm not minimizing those. This isn't the program for you. Radius has one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to get to those unreached, we call them language groups. We think it's a lot more objective. And it, why, let me interject. Yeah. Why do you call them unreached language groups as more of an objective metric? Mostly because we find that unreached people groups is starting to be like what missions is. Missions is anything okay. and everything. Unreached people groups. And then you've got also unreached people. Like I've got unreached people all over my neighborhood in San Diego. But when you're talking about unreached people groups, dials it down a little bit closer, unreached language groups. Now we've got some objective. Something we in can, the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> I was, we'll get to that. Like, if you go from Fire, the Tower James. of Babel all the way to Revelation 7, like you've actually got something pretty steady there that you can go. This is a way to measure even how Scripture measures distinct and objective, a way we can wrap our hands around people groups. James decided to speak up. So James, give us a quick biblical theology of language. I think, I think one thing that's interesting. And you can handle it. I know you can. A couple, thing, a couple things that are interesting. If, if you look in, I think it's Genesis 10, the table of nations. And it, is, it talks about the nations that came from Noah. Um, how does it describe, uh, you guys can look at it in, in, in your Bibles, but it describes it in terms of, of, of location, in terms of lineage, but then in terms of language. Um, and then throughout the Old Testament, you hear, like, you see uh, language often being used as this determinant. If you went to a different nation in the Middle East, you were going to a different language. Um, in, in the Gospels, you also see this as well. And in Acts, Acts 2 at Pentecost, what happens when the Gospel comes and the Holy, Spirit is, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church? Like, they speak languages. And in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, we're worshiping around the throne in what? languages, right? Every tongue and tribe and language and nation, right? So uh, you just see throughout scripture this um, like language is, and it's also just the easiest, most objective defining factor for a people group. And then I think like even the world knows this, like in Turkey, it's illegal to speak Kurdish. And the reason why is because if you want to, if you want to strip a people group of their identity, you go for their language. And so, like, the world knows this. Governments know this. They don't want you speaking other languages because um, that is that is what makes you a people. That's what defines you. Yeah. Um, let me ask one more question, and then I'm going to open it up to the floor for the last few minutes. Um, Radius isn't a sending agency, but, Brooks, what would you say uh, are the five most trusted sending agencies that you guys have come to work with? Gosh. There's the trap door. Like... <laughs> A literal tube, or a little four-inch okay. pipeline. So That's you got to hit Brooks. You yeah. Got so and they're and they're working with a lot, and he yeah. could give six or seven. But what would be the the? Well, let me put this caveat in at the beginning. Okay. So you've got some agencies to where the ethos of the agency we would be like, this is terrifying. But within that agency, they call these things big tent agencies, to where 
the agency doctrine and the agency statement on what they want to do doesn't carry any weight when it gets out to the sharp edge of the church plant. Okay. It's the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, the team statement, that's the guiding document. And so okay. we would go, okay, this particular agency, we're going to hold our nose and we're going to survive the various DMM trainings and things like that to get through them. But there's this team on the other end that does not subscribe to what the agency as a whole holds to. And so we'd go within frontiers, there's a lot to be worried about. But within Frontiers, there's about two or three team leaders and teams that we would go, those are good teams. And so it's hard to say. I mean, It's kind of nuanced. Yeah. Okay. If you look at the IMB, there are pockets of the IMB that are good, pockets of the IMB that are very dangerous. Uh, if you look, probably the one that I'm most excited about is reaching and teaching right now. I think they've got good doctrine. They're backed up well uh, from top to bottom. That's a rare thing. GSI, Global Serve International, is another good one. There are pockets of pioneers that I'm encouraged with, uh, specifically team leaders. Uh, there's some other ones. A growing trend that we're finding in, radi finding in radius is churches are just going around sending agencies and going, we're going to send our own members. And so there's some local churches that I'm pretty excited about. Take two minutes to talk about what you've seen with local churches just going around the agency. Is there enough data on that at this point to talk about what churches, what that looks like for churches to do the end around? Yeah, I mean, we've seen, okay, so there's, there's something, or there's different agencies that will just reseat your missionaries. That's all they do. They don't provide member care they're doing. Like okay. Shepherd Staff would be one of those types of agencies. Vahanti International is another one. And churches are going to go, okay, we're just going to use Shepherd Staff. They're the ones who all the supporters of our age are of our missionary. They're going to send their money to them. They're going to make sure that money gets to them in Afghanistan. So we're just going to use them and we're going to send thing, send them out in that way. So we're seeing that starting to be the a rising trend. The agencies had a tremendous amount of collateral and goodwill all the way through to about the mid nineties. And then the agencies started being the driving force in missions and not the home church. And by the time the church picked up on that, now the, the backlash is coming pretty strong. What do you see about a, uh, give me one pro and one con about the local church maybe doing the end around? Uh, pro would be they're much more tied into their people. Okay. Man, I tell you what, when the bigger the agency, the more the church has to guard against, we're just sending checks. We don't know these guys. We're not sure what they're teaching. We're very, this has been a silver lining, by the way, of coronavirus. A lot of missionaries have come home and churches are finding out what they're doing on the field and things have been rectified in some ways that weren't going to get rectified apart from coronavirus. So churches know their agents or they know their missionaries. They're a lot tied tighter to them. And then one of the things that is maybe not so good is churches don't have a lot of the institutional wisdom and history that agencies do. Okay. They don't know what happens at the Horn of Africa at a certain time of year. At Ramadan, our missionaries should be really careful about this. Or how do we care for their kids when they come home? What are some things we've seen happen to MKs for the last 40 years? Agencies have some of that institutional knowledge. Okay. All right. Questions. Who wants the first one? I'll come to you with the mic. All right, coming from Nathan Allen. I know. I lived with you in a van for a year. So, uh, Brooks, I loved it in your story. You said several times in the beginning when you were investigating tribes, you talked back to your home church. You asked them, and we've talked a lot about that. And it may not totally address everyone in this room, but when there is a church that has no missions vision, they have no idea what they're going to do. As you're training people, 
what sort of training do they get to, how do they mobilize their church back home? How do they ask, how do you teach them to ask good questions of agencies? Like what does that kind of look like to fill in the gap if the church has a little to no missiology? Yeah, that happens on occasion. So one of the things that we do down at Radius is we have a point of contact is what we call it. So anybody, if, if his church is sending him, we want somebody in senior leadership that is a regular contact person for him. There's three criteria for coming to Radius. Number one, you have to be a college grad. Number two, you have to be committed to going to an unreached, unengaged language group. And number three, you have to have the full endorsement of your local church. And so we're assuming at the get-go the church is bought into some level. Now we're getting more and more applications coming in from churches that are like, yeah, this sounds great. Let's do this. It's a very you want to tread very carefully and very slowly before you walk away from a local church for any reason. And so that's our big break is, hey, my church isn't getting it. They're not understanding missions. Slow, slow. Take your time. Walk through them and get them down to radius. That's one of the things we find that's a really big help. We have this thing coming up next month, May 13th. Uh, we cap the numbers because they're too high for pastors, but we're going to have over 100 pastors from around the country that will be down there for the first time learning what is missions and what is the Great Commission. And so get them down to those types of events. Get them to, like, we've got the Missiology Conference. John Piper will be speaking. Mark Devereaux will be speaking. Harshit Singh will be speaking. Uh, those guys are all going to be getting together at Bethlehem Baptist June 23rd and 24th. Get them to key events like that. Get them to sit in and listen to the cross conference. You help in any way possible. You pray a ton. You serve and you're humble. You don't try and jam this through with a crowbar. That's the thing that we're going to try and push is just go with an attitude of humility. And then if all of those things at the end don't work out, then we'll have another conversation and we'll talk about some future things. Some Nine Marks churches, um, man, Michael Lawrence's church has been a tremendous blessing to Radius grads that didn't know they had a church that was a little bit off the rails, and they took them in and brought them up, and now they're sending out as their own. So anyways, long answer. Next question. Mason. Thanks. Uh, so would you consider it better to go into Radius as a blank page, like a blank page, just willing to go wherever, or to have more of a narrow vision of, hey, this is where I want to go, and this is why I'm going to get trained? I'm going to answer this, and then I'll give it to James. I would definitely say, I don't like the idea of blank slate, but um, I would definitely not pick an agency and not pick a country before you come in. There's too many variables, and when you get in there, you might find, we usually have a hierarchy that we say, this is the most important you got your solid home church, then you got teammates. That's a big deal. And then under teammates, you've got agency, and then under agency is country. And so there's a hierarchy to that. But if you're already kind of married to an agency, your options are automatically cut down to a really small, to a much smaller degree. So when you get in there, like we've got some couples now that just had never heard of pioneers, and now they're going to be signing on with pioneers in a few weeks because some friends of theirs that are going with pioneers, and that option's available to them. But if they did come in with a different agency, that wouldn't be an option for them. James, do you want to speak about your experience with that? Uh, yeah. Uh, most of us are trying to rank those three big decisions when we first come in. Uh, team, agency, location. And so you, most of us will land on team being the most important thing because uh, interpersonal conflict is one of the, like, it's the biggest reason why people come off the field. And so it's important who you team with. It's important that you gel together. It's important that, um, that the women get along and they don't hate each other and they're all talking smack behind each other's back, right? It's, it's really important that you have a good team dynamic. And so 
if you go in and you, like for my wife and I, we had an affinity toward Muslims, uh, specifically in the Middle East, but we didn't want to put before that out there. Before you came to Radius. Before we came yep. to, to Radius. And so we didn't want to put that out there too strongly because there might be a, a two great couples that really, both of them really want to go to Southeast Asia. So we want to make sure we're available for that. And so most people in, the, in that, and speaking of a, great, of a blank slate, in that way, most people try to come in with as few of those decisions made um, beforehand, but not a completely blank slate because um, I think it's better that you come with some theological training, uh, whether it's from your church or from a seminary or whatever avenue you get that from, some ministry experience, whatever that looks like, uh, whatever your local church thinks you need before you come. Um, so you're not blank, you're not a blank slate in that way. Yeah. Um, can, can I, I just add? Yep. I, and I would add that like radius best serves like it's it's best utilized when you are, when you are ready to go right afterwards. So like, if your church says like you check every single list, like the only thing you have left is radius, then like you can go in like ready to make decisions. There's quite a few of us who are like, oh yeah, I'm actually not as close to my local church as I thought, or like actually I really really want to dive into theology and Old Testament New Testament survey before. I'm even like ready to pastor a church cross-culturally. So like figure out what are those things. If it takes you three years, like it will save like coming back from radius. It will make it faster. And being in radius, you'll be able to go in saying like, hey, I'm, I'm like ready to make decisions and I'm ready, God, to like be used by you wherever with whoever, with anywhere, you know. So um, that's like the only thing I would add. Nice. Did you have a follow-up question? Hang on, Will. Uh, just to follow up with the idea of the teams, is that something that is pushed by Radius? Or are those just finding like-minded people and saying, hey, let's pursue an agency together? Where, where does that fall? It's kind of both. We don't push it, but we find that Radius grads tend to be attracted to Radius grads because they have the same philosophy of ministry and they have the same priority. They've read the same books. They've had the same speakers. This is one of the things that as the organization grows and we have alumni that are on the field and they need coworkers, they come back to recruit, the students automatically have, there's a certain credibility to that individual because they went through the training. They got their butts beat in the morning workouts just as much as they are right now. And they did the same thing with the language. They, they made the same mistakes in Spanish. All of that adds credibility. And so you're almost looking internally. There are some exceptions to that, but they will only come from really, really strong churches that will go, okay, we'll vouch for that church over there, or the students will speak for a church, and they'll go, now we know that church and that theology. But if they're not from within, typically they're finding teammates from within their own class or the previous class or the upcoming class or alumni that are already on the field. Okay, well, is it common for many of your students to have some level of seminary completed before doing Radius? It's getting more common. So we just started the Radius Theological Institute. That's the opening class that is starting August 30th because we're feeling more and more biblical literacy is on the decline across the, across the entire world, but most especially in the English-speaking world. And so we're starting the school to help kind of buttress some of that, uh, mostly to make up for guys that either didn't have the time or didn't know. One of the things that we love about the program is that when people pop out the end of it, one of the most common things, two things they say, I didn't know what I didn't know. And number two, 
I need to know my Bible better. And so based off of that, let's give them something that they can dive into in conjunction with their local church. Now, some of them aren't going to do this because they're going to go back to their local church. They're going to start taking classes at other seminaries. But it's a growing group, the seminary group. It didn't used to be that way, but it's growing because we're pushing it more. Okay. Um, and second, you translate, whenever you go to do a translation uh, and start a translation, are you translating out of English into the new language, or are you translating out of, like, are people trying to do Greek and Hebrew, too? How does that process work? Depends. Depends on if they know Greek and Hebrew and if they know it well. We find that most seminary students know enough Greek and Hebrew just enough to be dangerous and not enough to translate a New Testament or an Old Testament. <laughs> James? So, is, is that you, James? <laughs> That's me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're very careful. Now, again, it Let's take James, for example. He's heading over to Iraq. He's going to be there. He's going to learn a language. Then he's going to allocate among the people groups that's actually unreached after he's got Arabic under his belt. Then he's going to learn that language for a couple of years, and he's got to have a platform to stay there. So we're talking best-case scenario, maybe five years down the road, he's going to start translating. That's the time when he needs to have his best translation classes. We're going to give them an introduction to translation. Here's what the process looks like. Here's how you do key terms. Here's how you transfer some of this. Here's what a transliter transliteration looks like. All of these different components. But true translation training, he needs to get that five-year mark so that it's fresh and it's ready and he's up to speed, ready to translate. In the back, Wheeler. Wheeler. Super thankful to have you all, so thanks for coming out. Uh, so you're trying to plant churches, like that's the end goal. Are you seeking to therefore send elder qualified guys out? Or are you thinking, I'd love for them to be elder qualified, but they won't be elders of that church intentionally? So that was one of my questions. It's like, did you become an elder of the church that you planted, or would that be too confusing? And so just trying to understand sort of your role as planting that church, what you did and didn't do, and how that relates to sort of the qualities. Because you have people who are really gifted in many capacities, but they're not elder qualified. So right. just curious to hear you talk about that. Yeah, we're definitely pushing, promoting. It's in our questionnaire uh, as people come into the program. Questionnaire that we ask their church staff, would you bring this person on staff? There used to be this idea in missions that she's kind of weird, He's kind of awkward. He plays a lot of Xbox in his parents' basement. Be we nice. would never make him a greeter. Let's send him to India. That'd be perfect. Like, <laughs> that's a horrible idea. And we're going, no, no, no. We think they should be the best from your church. Like, these are the ones that you're discipling going, I hope they take the mantle in five to seven years, and we're going to send them. They're elder qualified, or they're on the trajectory of being elder qualified. That's when you're talking about 20, 30-something guys, some of them aren't elder qualified just because of age. You don't want to put a young man in leadership, but they're on that trajectory. And you're talking about wives or young ladies that are equipped to teach women and children well. They're on that trajectory. So when we got there, we were very much the elders of the church for at least the first seven years. And then as the other guys came through the training program and started coming up, and then finally, in 2012, we laid hands on the first three guys and had our first elders there in the Indian. But definitely elder. Yes, absolutely. Can I give another thought on that? Go for it. So for, for us and our team, we, we're trying to approach it as we're going out to plant. <clears throat> we want to be able to model what church is like before we actually plant the church. 
So w as soon as we allocate, the people are watching us. They're going to see how we're interacting. They're going to they're going to know that we're worshiping. They're going to know a lot about us. We want to look and function as a church, and so for us that means we got we got to have elder qualified guys at least we at least a plurality, so at least two, and so we have three, and then we're treating our t our team as as that, um, so that we can model that for the group. Um, so it's not like totally unlike what we did. Now you guys go do something different. It's more like do like as you as you watched us. We're gonna now help you to do it the same way. Maybe take two more. Daniel Callison. So a lot of these questions have revolved around goers and people wanting to be trained, but maybe not everyone in this room will end up at Radius. That would be wonderful if that were the case, but only 70 next year, so it'll be a slow process. But for those of us who are part of a local church and wanting to send other people, what does it look like for members of local churches to send people well from your end on the Radius end of things, you know, receiving people who are, you know, what is something you really applaud? And then as you've seen people go out long-term to plant churches, what does healthy church involvement look like? Uh, not domineering, you know, or not controlling, but the, maybe the best case scenario. Just not from your local church, but what would you give us, like, what are some best case scenarios that churches could do to send? So I'm actually thinking of a student who's in Minneapolis, and I really like the ways that her church practically cares for her. And so she actually does have what they call a care team, and it's a bunch of people. There's, like, I think 20 of them specifically connected to her as she's going to be sent from her local fellowship who will be intentionally, like, praying for her, supporting her, um, and, like, with packages, with, like, updates, things like that. So, like, knowing that, um, and I think there's an organization called the GoFund, and they use the analogy of, like, a rope holder. So, like, if I was being lowered down, like, I need someone stable enough to, like, and strong enough to hold me. So, like, people encouraging me on, on like, my home side, like, my local church, they're going to be the ones who are, like, practically checking in with me. And um, they're not going to be like, you know, I'm not going to be calling them every day like, hey, I miss you so much. And they're going to be like, no, we miss you too. Like, no, I need you to tell me like why it's so important that I stay here and like why it's so important that I like I'm like experiencing momentary afflictions for the glory of Jesus. Like why it's so important that like my my like root and the root of my affection is built in the word and not in people or not my comfort and not that. So like being the tangible representation of Jesus for your sent for the person that you're sending, like that, that's, that's like beyond like worth. Um, like I, you know, I'm thinking of a couple of people who are like, when you want to come home, I'm going to tell you to stay. So like, what does that look like tangibly to like, see someone who's like who's it's not just about risking your life like you're just removing yourself from like comfort you're 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 placing yourself in an uncomfortable position relying on like on your local church to provide like your sustenance and the word and like you know does that make sense so like I think I'm thinking of this one student who's like got these people who are like going to be emailing her, who are going to be praying for her, who are going to be like in their home groups, like making sure that she's on their prayer list every time. Like someone's going to be checking in with her. Someone's going to be like doing packages once a month, like whatever that looks like. Um, be like the physical 
like tangible representation of the church like across the world. And I think one practical way to start doing that is if you know of missionaries from your church, <clears throat> ask them. Ask them what they need. Ask them what, how you can be praying for them. Respond to their emails when they email you. Because I know a lot of times we open them and then we don't respond. It means a lot to us when, when someone responds, even if it's like, thanks for the update. Like, hope you're doing well. Like, that's, that's literally, that's all, that's all, and it's super encouraging because, like, we know for sure that person read it. Yeah. <clears throat> and they didn't just open it and then close it so that way we feel good on our MailChimp account, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, so ask and, and then take little steps. And, and also, like, if you can, give generously or whatever that means, give generously. If you're going to be sending... Um, do it with, do it with as much of your life on the line as the person that's going. We do a short class on this during the May 13th. We call it Radius Day, uh, where we sit down church pastors for an hour and talk through the four major categories, uh, financial, physical, uh, then some of it's educational as you start to think of their children and they're going through what are things, and then ongoing uh, biblical education that they should be doing. And then finally, you're talking about like end of life things, what's, what it's going to look like if they lose their life overseas, uh, contingency things, what happens if they're kidnapped, what do you do with their families, what are the emergency contacts, who has power of attorney, those types of issues. 